back to Entertainment Geekly. I'm Darren Franich. Sitting across from me, stumbling out of the mud pit where he just did surgery. He just he just operated on a steroidal, sharp-toothed, mutant gang leader. It's wow. EW's Jeff Jensen. I, I live for your weekly introduction of me, Darren. Frankly, Thank you. Jeff, all I do to prepare for this show is to introduce you. Uh, Jeff... We are talking today about The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, in some ways, we're always talking about we The are, Dark Knight Returns. Seems... I'd be shocked, given the years we've done this show, if there's ever been a show where Frank Miller hasn't come up. It is so saturated, board. our respective worldviews, that it kind of creeps into anything yes, that we talk it, about. It, 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 it arguably invented us, perhaps, uh, yes. or at least refined us. Uh, we'll That's be talking, terrifying. Uh, uh, the first issue of The Dark Knight Returns came out exactly 30 years ago this month, mm-hmm. uh, in February of 1986. A great year for comic books in general. Yeah. We'll be celebrating this year. Uh, but special guest today, uh, one of the leading experts in Frank Millerology, uh, which is actually a rapidly expanding field that I'm, I'm sure is taught at several colleges in these great United States, uh, Alex Papadimus. Alex, thank you very much for being Thanks here for being. today. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. We knew we had to have you because you did so much great work on the Frank Miller arena uh, while at Grantland to the point where one of your final uh, reviews there was about the Muppets and you actually wound up blaming the badness of the new Muppets TV show on Frank Miller, which and, and you made a you I, I thought you, you argued the point very well also. But it is. It does all come back to Frank Miller for me. I can. I, apparently, I can take anything back there. I look at Miss Piggy, and somehow Frank Miller's face appears. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, now uh, there's so many things to talk about with *The Dark Knight Returns*. But I'm intrigued to know, Alex. Do you recall how did you first come to *The Dark Knight Returns* saga? Had you been a comic book reader? Did you seek it out, or did you kind of stumble upon it accidentally? Yeah, I mean, '86 was kind of, I think, my the b- very beginning of my sort of conscious fandom. There had always been comics around in my house and in my childhood and everything but I think like I'm, I'm 38 I was like eight years old prime sort of like just your mind is a malleable thing at that point and like you know whatever gets its hooks in you at that moment so I think like right within like sort of a year or two there were like a bunch of comics that really impacted me and like that was sort of when I became like a huge like X-Men fan it was like when I started reading X-Men like in the sort of the two it's like the 200s it's the early 200s but yeah Dark Knight I think I got it uh, like I don't know. I think I read it later on. I think I read it maybe a year or two after, but I know that I read it in single issues because I remember sort of asking somebody, I remember asking like this kid Tony to give me the next one when I got finished with the one that I was reading. So it was definitely not like traded. It was sort of like actually in like, you know, whatever the the floppy like square bound one. So so you were so you were 8 years old, so you knew who Batman was. Like how did you kind of I mean like but at the same time you were 8, so it's not like you necessarily had a clear set in stone idea of this being a radical departure from the norm or or maybe you did actually Jeff. yes and, and and to add to that I, i'd like to add one more question to that is that so you're eight years old eight to ten years old discovering the dark knight and uh where are you finding these comics i mean where are you buying your comics at that time uh you know i don't know because i was getting them I definitely, like, the, I remember, like, the first time I went to the actual specialty store and was like, what? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. this is a thing that exists? Like, yeah. that was amazing? And, like, I remember, like, everything that I bought, I still have all of it. I can pull it out. Like, it's, you know. But, yeah, I don't know. This was, like, I was, like, sitting in the school library in, like, study hall and, like, sort of getting them passed to me under the table. Is like, this is, like, you, yeah, you maybe you've read Batman, but, like, you, you haven't really read Batman. Because, like, my Batman was, like, the Super Friends Batman, mm-hmm. you know? Like, is it, like, who's the voice? Is it Casey Kasem? Who's the actual voice of the Super Friends? It's, like, somebody, like... I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's some, I thought it was... At, didn't Adam it West might have been Adam do, West, like, right? Batman cartoons, too? Yeah, well, like, who was the... Yeah, somebody, like, all the... By the way, all the nerds out there who are, like, oh, just tearing their... Yeah, I know. <laughs> you'd be surprised how, how many times Super Friends had 
uh, has come up on uh, on this show too. Mm-hmm. That's our other. It's it's Super Friends and Dark Knight Returns are are our two touchstones touch here. So yeah, but that was my sort of that was my frame of reference basically for Batman. I never read. I, I had one or two Batman comics, but I never really read that. I just. But obviously, you know who Batman is. It's very like you know my daughter's five. She knows who Batman is. Like she totally gets like the whole concept of Batman in a way that she doesn't. Like she understands like Spider Man and the other things, but like she's actually like you know like there's a a personality for Batman that she knows. Like, it just somehow, you know, from looking at him. I find that pretty heavy to think that for you, from, for the most part, the Dark Knight wasn't just a reinvention of Batman for you. It was largely your introduction to Batman. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's true. I never really lived in a world pre that. Like, you know, I, I mean, I did, but not consciously. <laughs> right, 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 right. I was right. not aware of, you know. I've gone back and sort of looked at all that older stuff, obviously. But, like, it was, yeah, it was the TV show and Super Friends and Dark Knight. And I, I did understand, like, that Dark Knight was a something different, but it just felt like a break with what, like, comics had been. Because mm-hmm. it was, more, you know, because of just the violence and the sort of the tone. Like, you get, you can sort of, you can feel it even if you don't know about the medium and, like, where it is in the history of the medium. I think even looking at it, sort of just comparing it, like, it just doesn't look like the other comics that I was right. reading at that time. And the stuff that I was sort of starting to gravitate toward, like, didn't either, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it was because, like, I mean, that's that's the moment when, like, you know, the like Wolverine is at his coolest and, like, those kinds of things, like, which is, you know, a lot of that comes out of the Frank Miller Wolverine, so it's all sort of, you know, you're starting to It all to goes back out. to Frank Miller. Right? It all goes back <laughs> to Frank Miller. But, yeah, you're starting to, you're just, like, you're, like, you're becoming conscious at the same, I, I, I had this with music, too, like, like a few years later, like once you start to figure out like what music is, you immediately become a snob about it, you know? Yeah. Like it's like there's no snob like someone who found out about like cool bands like yesterday, you know? Like there's no <laughs> snob like a 14 year old snob. And like so I was like an eight year old. I was like, oh, this is like the real, the, 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 this is the realness. Like this is actually where I want to be. Yeah, I can relate to that. Definitely like the Dark Knight made me a total snob. Like is that right, song. Jeff? Well, so I mean, like, like Jeff, like I actually don't know this. Had you been like a comic book collector, kind of pre Dark Knight Returns, or, or was that was, was that also kind of very central to your? So I'm older. I'm 45. So I was 15 discovering the Dark Knight, and by that time, I was already into like you were a man seven, of the world. Yes. I was a man <laughs> of the world, at least in comics. But um, but I was I probably started reading comics around five, six, seven years old, and for me, my comics journey to use a ridiculous phrase um like kind of mirrored the the whole journey of comics as a medium at that time so around the late 70s you start seeing this very slow migration of comics away from newsstand which is a very kind of different kind of business for the comics exclusively into the comic book store by the early 80s and with that migration the comic book business changes dramatically in terms of who they're producing comics for, the, the, the variety of offerings, um, how they're treating their artists, the kinds of opportunities they're creating for their artists. And so it was a really exciting time to be a comic book fan through the early 80s building toward The Dark Knight, which was a really big peak for it because you know a, a lot of artists at, comic, at, the, at the mainstream comic book companies were being given great opportunities to do very innovative things or different things um, you know, to, largely to keep them from going to independent publishers and, and, and keeping them in-house. And so, and Frank Miller's career, like, summarizes all of those changes. I mean, like, starting off in mainstream comics with Daredevil, 
um, moving from there to Ronin, Frank Miller's Ronin, and having to keep him happy. With Have any of us actually read Ronin, yes, by the way? Yeah. Yes. That comes up frequently. I, I've never read it. Is, is, is it like good, or is it sort of like his later work where it's cool to look at, but kind of crazy in terms of I like, really like narrative it. clarity? It's like a pure sci-fi book, and he, like he, there's not a lot. I mean, you can maybe like Martha Washington is that way, but like I like his sci-fi stuff. It's also, like, it's fun to watch him. The best thing about it is you're watching somebody. It's, like, one of the first big American books that takes in uh, Lone Wolf and Cub. Because he was getting, like, he was, he was like, a, also a man of the world. He was, like, a famous comic book artist and, like, was going to conventions and was buying stuff and, like, seeing stuff that wasn't available in translation. Yeah. So he's seeing, like, Mobius and, like, you know, Koika, like, bef- uh, like before most people. Th- like, now it's, like, you, it's, you take it for granted. Like, you can go out to your local comic book store and you can buy all of Lone Wolf and Cub. But, like, that at the time... Before like it came out in translation, like before Epic put it out, like you were sort of he like had the sort of the like the, the the plug that nobody had, you know, like he was sort of out there fine. And so it's it's really influenced by those things. And if you like are into as I am, like looking for the you know where the line comes from, but you can really see like you know there's parts of it that look like Mobius, and there's parts of it that look like Lone Wolf and Cub, and there's you know yeah, there was something really exciting about Frank Miller because like uh, um. Uh, watching him grow as an artist you you see other artists of that era and you can see as a comic book fan um the other comic book artists from which you know he has descended or she has descended frank miller was uh for me it was really hard for me to place his influences just looking strictly within comics because he was internalizing influences from outside of comics in a way and bringing them into comics that was really exciting, like, you know, martial arts films and and, uh, and all sorts of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was just, su- for, for a comic book fan coming of age at that time, he was super exciting to watch because he was growing, he was changing, he was, he was, he was dragging us along with him and, and, and growing us up. And I think that then Dark Knight comes along and that feels like a huge peak for a lot of trends that were happening um, in comics in general, including specifically like the deconstruction of superheroes. I mean, just the year before, America is getting Alan Moore's Marvel Man, uh, now Miracle Man. We're getting Watchmen the same year. 1986 was a crazy year yeah. because you had Watchmen coming out. I, I want to say it, it started at the end of summer right after Dark Knight ended. At the same time, Miller was writing Born Again, um, for right. Marvel, the, right. the incredible Daredevil story. And I think, I, Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think while Alan Moore was working on Watchmen, he was also writing Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, the sort of like Superman right. wrap-up of the Golden and, and Silver Age. Like that's, that's a lot of high-powered, really kind of exceptional comic book work happening in one Absolutely. sort of 12 to 13-month span of time. I, I think that I... I, I engaged Dark Knight then more as a moment in terms of what it represented in comics in general and as a just admitted Frank Miller fan. Because to be honest with you, I don't feel like I had a lot of huge affection for Batman. The, the Batman story. Were you more of a Superman guy? I, I I like Superman even less. <laughs> yeah. Green Green Lantern. I was Flash? much I was much more of a Marvel guy mm-hmm. and, and much more of a I mean I was an X Men guy. So um, just a more contemporary, modern hero sensibility. Um, but, you know, you know, watching Miller engage Batman kind of like dusts him off to an exciting degree. Um, 
But yeah, that that Alan Moore story about whatever happened to the Man of what was it called again? I forget. Whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow? It it's was the, a, it's it was... the last pre-crisis Superman story. Exactly. That's right. The one yes. that, like, and I mean, and I mean, it, it's funny. It's the last well, pre-crisis well, well. story, but it also it, it takes all of the kind of history of the pre-crisis mm-hmm. and conjures it into a very dark. I mean, the... I think the story there is that it actually comes out comes out at the end of Crisis and oh. before the John Byrne reboot of everything. Oh, okay. That's it. So, so this, this is sort of like the end of, of, of that Superman story but when you hear, before. When you hear longtime comic people talk about that story, like Mike Richardson at Dark Horse Comics, I remember interviewing him once, and they talk about that comic as, at the time, they were keenly aware that Alan Moore was doing something on multiple levels, not just giving us a great Superman story, but essentially ending an era of comic books as we know it and creating and, and, and saying we're we're in a whole new space now and it's it, the game has completely changed well, and it's interesting you know hearing how you guys came to the story I'm a little younger I'm, I'm 30 years old which which actually does mean that we are all older than Frank Miller was when he was writing and and, and illustrating Dark Knight Returns which so is bring, pretty, which, yeah. is, which is which is pretty crazy but I first discovered it I, I can still remember um, the my local library had the collected edition of it where it's Batman on the cover kind of his silhouette is up against a, a, a tower in Gotham and the Batman spot Spotlight is kind of forming the symbol on, on on his chest, and I I guarantee like my parents were very diligent about about like perusing what I watched in terms of TV and movies. They definitely had no idea what this comic book was. So my memory of it is kind of like um, do you guys recall there was that uh, there was a, a famous Calvin and Hobbes strip where Calvin is kind of reading a a, a faux Frank Miller comic book, and, and in the comic book Bill Watterson sort of illustrates this sort of very Rob Liefeldian boobsy super heroine who actually shoots the spine out of sort of like some fake Batman and then like you cut at the end to Calvin and he just looks like he he's just his eyes are wide and he's just like what is that? that that's more or less how I like how I as a kind of six or seven year old consumed most of, of Dark Knight Returns and it's funny because I do think that we're in this phase now where there are probably several dozen micro generations of people that have discovered it in the same way so much later from from its original context I mean we're now we're talking about this movie in about a month, Zack Snyder is releasing a about we're we're talking about Doctor Returns. In a month, uh, Zack Snyder is releasing Batman v Superman, which visually at least is probably the most accurate recreation of certain elements of Dark Knight Returns. Yes, yeah, issue four of Dark Knight Returns, like as a movie, like yes, yes, except probably with a with with a happy ending. If I had to, if if I had to guess, but I I, I I sort of like want to drill down. I mean, we were sort of like revisiting this comic book. I I reread it this week for the first time in a while. I'd be intrigued to know like when you revisit it. Is there anything you notice, anything that surprises you? It can be hard with Dark Knight Returns to cut through the kind of veil of influence and the 30 years of stuff it created. And in fairness, the 30 years of things Frank Miller has said about it that may not be entirely convincing. Like, is there anything that you kind of discovered anew about it, Alex? I know you've 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 you've, you've probably read it a, a, a few times. I've read it point. a bunch of times. I read it last night, but I've read it recently, more you know, fairly recently because I was writing about it and, and thinking about it. I, every time I read it, it's it's funny, yeah, because it's one of those works of art that like when you actually go back to it like and you think about everything that you've read about it you're like like what book are they reading sometimes I, I have that feeling about it in a big way like that you like it you know I mean you said like you mentioned Jeff like deconstruction like 
the more I read this book, the more I feel like this is actually like it is a, a love letter to the idea of Batman. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of he's trying to restore mm-hmm. something that he sort of like feels has gone missing from like superheroes in general, but from and Batman in particular. It's weird. I mean, we're talking about it. Of course, it should be in the same conversation as Watchmen because it's the same period. And they're, they're these two sort of like competing kind of versions of the, you know, revisionist superhero narrative. But it's actually like they're completely different. They're almost like, you know, they're like, you know, like thesis and antithesis of like that idea. It's like Alan Moore is basically like, okay, if we had superheroes in this, in this world, it would sooner or later, like we would be doomed sooner or later. Someone would make that sort of like Stalinist calculation that like one life is a tragedy and a million lives are a statistic. And like there would, you know, they, one of them would commit mass murder in order to save the human race or something like that would happen. Like, and so, and ultimately it's like, that's a book about how, like, how can you ever be, absolutely sure that your choices are right and that they're moral and that like you know like it's it's so and it has a very sort of like you know this very strange kind of ambiguous ending where the superheroes win but they really lose and like this book I was looking at it again last night it's like this is a book about how Batman's only superpower is moral clarity like he just knows exactly what the right thing to do is in a situation and like he's the only guy who will actually sort of like meet out punishment to the people that are... Well, and do, do you think, too, I, I find that, you know, there's so many adjectives that tend to accrue to The Dark Knight Returns and to what it created. Sure. And, you know, it's grim, it's gritty. Sometimes people will throw around realistic, but but what that means is interesting because with, with, with Watchmen, it's the realism of, like, what if these superheroes were people? And so you you meet, you know, sort of fake Batman, Night Owl, when he's older, and he's, and he's, he's pudgy. He's pudgy, and he's kind of just like, you yeah, know, he's a been dude. pining and, over the same girl for 20 years right, and, like, right. you know, and, like, and what's interesting is that you know with the dark knight returns especially compared to some of miller's later batman work i think that because it cuts the mythology down to sort of like to to the bone and, and you know batman doesn't have any his none of his love interests appear or if, if they do appear it's only for kind of a quick kind of throwaway reference to Vicky Vale yeah. or, or to catwoman but but what, what, what that effect is it actually it's more like it's sanding him down until you get just i mean he is a kind of 50 year old batman who for some reason is still 12 and a half feet tall and like even like the, the way he illustrates him you notice it more in miller's later work but he really does illustrate him to be just this huge broad kind of cartoonish figure with just you know like whenever he whenever he's standing next to Robin she is she seems to be like one eighth his size yeah which is, which is really interesting it's a Batman that looks the way your dad looked when you were a kid <laughs> yes. like it's he's giant like there's that one I think it's in issue two there's like the when when like Carrie sort of like when he kind of recovers from his first like real beat down at the hands of the mutants and she like jumps into his arms like he's he's like looks like the living monolith he's like 10 feet tall and like she you know yeah, there was definitely, I, I hear what you're saying in terms of Miller's after something here with this Batman of, 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 of maybe being true to it in a way. He's getting back to a Batman that's dark and scary and has this just terrifying moral clarity taken to a, a, an extreme. At the same time, I do think it counts as deconstruction against the backdrop of what was happening in comics at that time, especially with like, Alan Moore and Miracle Man and then Watchmen because I think in general what they were both doing was deconstructing the idea of a hero that is motivated by selflessness, that is motivated by virtue, that is motivated by uh, truth, justice, and the American way. These collection of comics are basically saying that's all crap. Yeah, what, I mean, what that, do you that, think, what do you that think does motivate Frank Miller's Batman? That, that's actually something well, that I just, sort of lost track of. It's just of all pathology. It. You know, it's just it's that he is 
hopelessly beholden to this tragedy that happened to his past that crafted this sort of like way of thinking about the world and that 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 produced this identity that he's practically addicted to i mean yeah. in, the, in the first issue we we find him kind of trying to stifle this thing down inside him and they almost using do... using one of the great mustaches in in comic book history right. that that symbolic mustache is very important to to Bruce Wayne when he's not batman yeah he's drinking the family wine cellar like alfred kind of gives yeah. him a hard time about it like it was sort of obviously like he used to and like gordon says something to him at some point that like you used to pretend to he was like dean martin like where he would pretend to be drunk and then eventually like he sort of became a drunk in real life you know yeah. like and so like i think <laughs> right. that happens like, but yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Like it's it's just I just think it's two very different deconstructions. Like I, I think yeah. it, it certainly counts, but it's like I mean, like Miller said this too. It's like you know like, that like you know Alan Moore did the autopsy and I did the wake, you know, <laughs> which is always good. But then like the, what you said like about his sort of like him being motivated entirely, like that's absolutely that's what Sam Ham said about it. Like I remember like he had a really good quote and I can never I I forget where it was actually from Sam Ham who wrote the screenplay for the original the Tim Burton uh, Batman movie from '89 mm-hmm. like said basically that like this was a guy who is just sort of it, 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 it's a he's a child and like he's just he's just forever taking out his sort of like childlike rage on the world and like it's just it's all pathology it's all just like he's just it, like trying in vain to like if he could just beat up enough muggers You're right you know like it would change everything but he can never like, beat sort of, up like, enough he, that kind of thing yeah it's like, like he's like trapped in this hopeless cycle of violence i mean he he thinks he can find some catharsis that could free him but ultimately, it just keeps on uh, uh, locking him into this this cycle. And, and it's really interesting pathology too, because like the, there's that moment early in um, in issue one, which I'd kind of forgotten about, where he returns to Crime Alley. There's there's probably now a whole subgenre of Batman stories that begin with him either accidentally or purposefully returning to Crime Alley, where of course his parents died. But in, in this telling, what happens is firstly, you know, a couple of, of of the mutant gang members come up to him, and like the mutant are like one of those 80s gangs that only exist to kill people you know there's there's there, there's no real purpose to them and what I think happens in that scene you sort of see him flashing back to the moment of his parents death and the mutants seem to say oh we can't kill him he's really into it like as yeah. if right like these these kind of kids who are so just again all they exist to do is sort of wreak havoc they're like whoa this this guy wants us to kill him and we we we, we can't do that like this is messed up yeah i can't this is not it's cool too, it's too messed up yeah it's interesting but you know alex it's funny you sort of mentioned just like you know certain images that, that stuck with you i've been trying to know like are there any images from when you guys first read it that are kind of eternally lasered into your brain uh from dark knight returns for me i always think of there's the sequence where he's fighting superman at the end and it's one of the big splash pages when he is kicking Superman in the bottom of his jaw with his sort of like spiky boots. And I remember like as a kid, that that was my moment where I was just like, I can never, like, you know, I was still kind of at the dawn of me collecting comics and I collected many, many Superman comics and many Batman comics. I could never get that image out of my head when I thought of those two characters. Are, are there any other kind of big images like that that really do stick with you? The horseback, uh, when they, the Batman riding into town on horseback is just so badass. Like it's still, it, it, I, 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 it turns me into an eight-year-old again, like just to, to, to see that. I mean, there's, it, it's, it's hard because I don't get taken back very easily, but just you can't not get a little bit excited when it's like there is a nuclear uh, winter power failure, and so Batman, I guess, can't use the Batmobile. And there's, but there's some horses, and so it's Batman and a gang of mutants like ride. The cavalry has arrived, like on horseback, 
And like that's you know he was like that. Uh, Miller has played off that a couple of times later on. He knows like how good that is. Like yeah, I mean, and uh, you know, uh, a couple responses, but. Um, you just reminded me of something, Alex, that like I encountered anew in reading this last night in terms of kind of like um, when you asked, what did I notice like in re- reading it again? Like how many comics from that period and, and Watchmen is suffused with that too, which is the the, the terror of uh, of nuclear war. Yeah. Um, and how that was actually really real in the mid 80s at the end of the, at the twilight of the Cold War. Um, there was this renewed pitched sense that that we were all going to die by nuclear fire, like, you know, like with Ronald Reagan and, and the Soviet Union at it again, you know. Um, the Reagan stuff really jumped out for me on this reread. I mean, like, like obviously, like, as a kid, like, yeah. A, I, I didn't know who that was, and B, like, I didn't really care about anything besides Batman fighting people. But, like, on this reread, I, there is... It's funny how he sort of builds up the Reagan kind of political stuff in the background. It's just sort of like the constant kind of Verhoeven-esque interjections of various news cycles while while he's telling the story. And then... I think it's issue four is when like the crisis in, I, I think it's some some fake nation. That was Corto Maltese. Corto, yes. Corto Maltese. It's yeah, a Hugo right. Pratt reference. It's like a court. It's Corto Maltese. But then then that shows up. You, like if you read it now, you think it's a reference to the Batman movie because that's the name of the. They mentioned it. That's where Vicky Vale is just back from. She's taking oh, pictures of. Fascinating. She's taking pictures of atrocities in Corto Maltese. It's like a little little oh, shout that's, out. That's, that's so oh, interesting. But Corto Maltese is the pirate hero in the Hugo Pratt comic. Like if you never read uh, Corto Maltese, oh, like, that's yes. fascinating. But so so it's funny. It's like that's kind of building up in the background. And again, like I think kind of on first reread. You just assume like, oh, this is kind of one more news cycle interjection. You know, there, there are various kind of news shows that are constantly kind of, you know, interjecting with, with the flow of the narrative. But then the nuclear bomb gets launched. And, and this leads into something that I, I really noticed upon rereading this and especially rereading The Dark Knight Strikes Again. As much as we talk about Frank Miller's portrayal of Batman, his portrayal of Superman is really interesting and sort of jumps out for me more and more because that's when you get one of the most nightmarish images in comic book history after Superman has just sort of survived yeah. the nuclear bomb and he's just a kind of flailing it, it's like um in under the skin when they just become these weird skin things flowing in like in a husk it, it is a horrifying image and that's what he then seems to absorb an entire rainforest to get its sun energy back I don't know there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff that when we tend to remember it for its kind of realism you do have to kind of face the fact that in Dark Knight Returns a nuclear bomb goes off and there is nuclear winter and that is the setting for the final Batman-Superman fight, right? It's like, yeah. like, like the sun has been out for the previous week or, or something like that. It's like Gotham City is not dark enough. We need to also just, there's not even a daytime. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, exactly. just, it's already. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, Jeff, uh, I, th- I think you had something else to say. Oh, I was I just going to say that uh, rereading it again, I was uh, confronted by like, wow, how many of not just images, but like lines from this thing have stuck with me for better or worse. I don't know why, but like in the first one, this whole thing about, uh, you know, as we find kind of like Bruce Wayne kind of like fighting that voice within him to, you know, the, the Batman that he's suppressed, this line, while in my gut, the creature writhes and snarls and tells me what I need. I like just lines like that and depicting his relationship to the Batman identity in that fashion, that kind of stuff stucks with me. But I think the image that always sticks with me from this comic is the death of the Joker at the end of uh, 
uh, at the end of the third issue, which is just really chilling. His his version of Joker is interesting too, and it was interesting to come to that after so many years of, of kind of seeing the, the imitations of Miller, because I'm not sure we've really seen his Joker adapted in any way. I mean, like, the Joker in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, a movie that takes a lot of its tone from this, that is a very different sort of Joker, I, I would argue. I was actually wondering, is there any evidence that had he seen To Live and Die in L.A.? Because this Joker looks and acts a lot like Willem Dafoe yes. in To Live and Die in L.A. He has I, those I've, sensual yes. lips. yes. Like he's really like that when they've done the surgery on him so that he can be de Jokerized in the beginning. Like he looks like he's a beautiful man, like with the, with the makeup and yes, everything. Yes, and, like and, and, and just like, unsettling like, way. And, and like the, the scene where where the Joker goes on fake David Letterman. I think it's David Endocrine. Yes, possibly. <laughs> yes. This is this is the dawn of, of there, there are some all time great Frank Miller pun names in in the Dark Knight series, and and that's definitely one of them. But there's just like a way that he has of standing, which yeah, is very debonair and interesting. But so yes, we we lead into where you think. Batman is going to kill the Joker, and in fact, I think he breaks his neck. He breaks his neck, but he doesn't kill him. That's doesn't unique, kill him. And he can't do precise. it. If you re- precise. I mean, talk about things that you noticed that I never noticed before. Like literally last night. Like if you the first two issues, like it, like he's the guy who will the Batman. The, this Batman is the Batman who will do anything that is necessary, yes. like to, you know, to go to the end of it. But like he, there's like in both the first two issues, it ends with him sort of like you know making the merciful decision. It's like he doesn't like throw Harvey Dent off a building at the end of it. Like I never really that they're actually like that's there's that scene where he's like it's like I'm looking in a mirror like because they you know he has this moment with Two Face but they kind of have this moment where he's only he might be giving him a hug on the floor in that last yeah. panel like he's actually there's it's, he's somewhat it's almost like he's embraced him and like they don't tell you what happened to Harvey after that like you know but there's, there's one quick throwaway throwaway reference where the kind of liberal psychologist who who becomes who who's maybe actually like the main villain of of the Dark Knight Returns Lily so Livered Shrinkers yeah, like yeah. he, he kind of keeps on appearing there's a moment where he kind of just makes reference to the fact that like like, like Harvey is recovering. But, but through, you know, it's interesting is through that character, though, Miller, like, really puts a lot of ideas in front of the readers about ways to think about superheroes and supervillains in comics that, to me, as a, as a kid growing up, that I had never thought of before, regardless of whether he's satirizing these ideas. At the time, and this would have a huge influence on, on me in terms of thinking about comics moving forward, but for example, using him to express this idea that these supervillains are victims of Batman's pathology, that Batman as a cultural idea and our relationship to the cultural idea and how he influences people who consume the cultural idea of Batman. So this theory that Batman creates his own villains because Batman as a, as an extreme character inspires unhinged people to extreme lengths. Those ideas were actually pretty like kind of blew my mind as a kid and kind of like got me rethinking comics just in general. It's crazy though cuz Miller almost like and he talks about like there's there's scenes in like I think it's the third issue like you start to see ordinary people kind of go and Bernard gets because of yes. Batman. Yes. Like that's the that's the other thing and like it's because you don't know it's like in the Nolan movies like Nolan runs with that idea that Batman creates his own villains right that like the Joker sort of exists yeah. because and like that comes from the Joker story when the Joker's like I never count the people I've murdered but you do and I love you for it. Yes. Like, and that's which is awesome that that stuff by talking talk about lines that stuck with you but yeah but then there's that sequence where you see a bunch of people there's these little sort of like vignettes of people who've been inspired by Batman to kind of rise up against you know 
crime or just against somebody they don't like. And like you get the feeling that Miller almost thinks that's a good thing, you know, mm. that he's excited about it, that it's like finally like people are standing up. Like the most important thing about Frank Miller in terms of this book is that he moves to New York from Vermont in like the early 80s, the very early 80s, he moves to Hell's Kitchen when it's like Hell's Kitchen, like when it's like lives up to its name and he gets mugged like 50 times. Like it's literally like this is it's the, the number Every day he's, he's the number is apocryphal, but like Frank Miller is like getting like sort of like just like yoked for his lunch money, like on the street, <laughs> like over and over again to the point that like he's like he talks about he references it in some like comics journal interview that he would just keep money like to give muggers, like to just be like, here's my mugger money like for each day. And like so like it's not until like he moves out of New York, like he makes he like he'd moved to Los Angeles by this point and like he does Ronin there and then like he does this there and like he starts this one is the book like Daredevil's very much about New York, but it's like the Marvel New York. It's like a sort of fanciful kind of like, you know, whatever. And like this is the one that's actually about his I think his experience sort of like being a victim of street crime over and over again. Yeah. Like, and that, and like, he's sort of like daydreaming about like, sort of like, you know, basically like, you know, people like rising up and going vigilante. And like, some of it is like, some of the people are portrayed as crazy, but some of the people are actually portrayed as like, finally, like somebody did that. And like, so it's like Batman is like the, like, you know, alpha vigilante that inspires like the, the flock. There's there's a real sense in issue three, which I, I I think to me that's really when like Miller as a storyteller, you just hit this point where you're moving kind of between different people's inner monologue. Uh, I, I believe in in English class I had to look this up. It, it was it, it, it's what's called free indirect discourse, uh, a, a a favorite of the Virginia Woolf era of writer. But he actually does that where you're kind of going from crazy person who's been inspired by Batman back to Batman, back to Commissioner. Gordon back to new commissioner Yindel and you're also he does this thing it's very effective like when you kind of dive into their inner monologue there are no more periods nor are there starts to sentences there are just like there are ellipses or there are double dashes so there's just this this real sense of just this snowball has started rolling down a mountain in issue one and now it is a gigantic sort of meteorite coming straight for Gotham which is is really interesting and it's something that like I, I think that you know when we think about people who are influenced by him, as much as we talk about ideas or images that influence them, that just kind of storytelling style, I, I think only really in, 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 in The Dark Knight, Nolan kind of captures that when there's just so many things happening and there's just this real sense of the whole city is now at risk, but also the whole city is maybe the villain somehow. Uh, yeah, and I just want to jump on that real quick. Like, as a reader of comics at that time, where you're kind of reading comics from up until that point, mainstream superhero comics and um and there are definitely like artists and sensibilities that you're tracking but by and large every comic book superhero story is beholden to a house style or a universe point of view there was something really thrilling and different and game-changing to encounter a batman then this character that belongs to a universe that belongs to a company but is completely filtered through an artist's sensibility and this really is frank miller's batman in a way that was just really exciting and would kind of set the course for a lot of comics moving forward. Um, but 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 yeah, like rereading it again, I was really connecting to what you were saying, Alex, which is um, even more so, this is Frank Miller's Batman as a wish fulfillment of this guy in his late 20s who's been really beaten and battered by the world and has a lot of anger and issues for it and using this story to really vent that rage and 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 for catharsis 
Um, in a way that actually kind of scares me. How do we, yeah, yeah. Can I ask, the one thing that didn't work for me on this, strangely, on this reread, I actually found myself liking it more than I remembered, only because, like, I think that, you know, as 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 you said, Alex, there were things that I remembered about it that were either not accurate or, or that were very influenced by things that were influenced by it. The one thing that didn't work for me was the, the mutants, and specifically, oh, specifically yeah. the mutant leader. That, that feels like something... That that, that, that almost seems like Miller took all the things you're describing, Jeff, and when in other parts of the book he manages to really dramatize them or, or at least, you know, actualize them in, in a really interesting way, that's just where I'm just like, that that mutant leader is just a, you know, steroid abomination of, like, there's, there, there's no there there, and so that part of the book just feels strange in a way, although maybe that was kind of part of the point. No, he should be, I mean, yeah, he should be a more interesting character. Like, he should be Marlo Stanfield. You yes. know, he should be like the, like the sort of, like, here's the new version version of this thing and that's what he's trying to sell it as like there's a like you know Bruce has like an internal monologue at some point where he's like oh dick like he's talking to Robin in his head like you know it's like about how like we never face something like this but he's a kind of a generic sort of antagonist that you could like draw in your notebook in five minutes and like I wonder almost yeah. if like it was like maybe there was a plan at one point to have it be some more iconic DC villain like and maybe he like sort of like it's, it's weird that he didn't use somebody like that I was wondering about that or a yeah. Batman villain or something but it has to be just like yeah because you have to believe like, that this that Guy is, Clayface, and that would have had more of an effect. Yeah, <laughs> but, but then I guess it's it's like, you know, he has this relationship with his antagonist that's very personal, and, like, this is just a monster. Like, this is just a monster <laughs> that he has to beat up, and it's almost like he's just training for, like, the next, the, the second half of the book. Like, he has to just wail on this guy and, like, get wailed on to kind of get toughened up and everything. But, yeah, he should be sort of, like, you know, like, the, the way that, like, in The Wire, like, Marlowe is the worst version of, like, you know, of Stringer Bell and, like, them, like, the, of that, that, that tier of gangsters. Like, he's the sort of even more immoral thing that comes in you know after the fact but I, I hated the mutants too I hated the way they looked I hated the way they talked um, but you don't, I, you don't we, like fake Nadsat? Oh my can we gosh. can we talk about how so uh, Jeff and I were both reading the 30th anniversary edition, which comes with um, a new foreword that's essentially an interview with Brian Azzarello talking to Frank Miller. Um, and uh, at, at one point, Frank Miller says that he based their patois uh, on now, now he says it's based on um, the way that Lynn Varley talked to her siblings, and all he says about her is Lynn Varley quote who colored the Dark Knight, end quote. Who colored, I mean, I I want to curse and say that, but like she colored the heck out of the Dark Knight. Yes. Yes. Like every time, I, I'll tell you, every time I reread this book and every time I reread any of the old Miller stuff from that period, it's like Lynn Varley, Lynn Varley, Lynn Varley. Like she's so good. And like all of the, like the point where like they, like they, where they broke up and stopped working together, like broke up personally and professionally, like it takes, the stuff like takes a dive. Like there's, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, I even like, we're gonna, like I, I promise not to talk too much about Dark Knight Strike back but like just the stuff that she's doing in Dark Knight Strikes Back with like the weird like you know Photoshop gradients like oh, and oh, all oh, that I mean, like, like if there's a reason to defend uh, Dark Knight stri Strikes Again right Strikes I would, Again I, I always say so yeah I right. always confuse Dark Knight Strikes Back and Strikes Again and now I always confuse Rises and, and Returns um, but no like that that is almost a sort of like delivery system for her, her coloration at times which is really interesting but it is funny who sorry, colored the book uh, yeah no. you damn right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, two things about the mutants, though, that I would defend that I really picked up on uh, this 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 new reading. Um, I, I I did though uh, like I mean I didn't like the mutants as a villain, 
But I really kind of picked up on maybe because I'm now in my mid 40s and approaching midlife. And I found myself like, am, am I close to like Bruce Wayne, Dark Knight at Returns age? But this whole idea of, of the mutants in this book as an expression of youth and how he constantly wants to fight the mutants, especially in that, in that second issue, as a measure of his own virility and vitality and, and, and his age, which I thought was kind of like ridiculous and poignant at the same time. But also how, and this is where I think that maybe Miller earns the mutants by the end, because I do like what kind of happens to the mutants after they're defeated and how he uses them as this, like they're constantly like looking for someone to believe in and someone to latch on to. So sons of the Batman. Sons yeah. So, Batman, so after right? the mutants yeah. get defeated and their leader gets defeated, all of a sudden now they latch on to Batman and they, la- they become essentially these rabid Batman fanboys, but to the extreme, I mean, they become these like really nihilistic creatures, yeah, like child all- soldiers, like and they're really like child. So no, no soldier better than a child soldier. Cause they don't understand anything except like who they're, you know, following and like what they're doing. Like, yes. Yes. And I and I and I, he he's after something there. I don't think it's a fully fleshed out thematic and intellectual idea, but I was really intrigued by that. I mean, even after the Joker suddenly emerges on the scene in in, in the third issue, suddenly there are sons of Joker like mutant derivations. They're always fragmenting and rallying around some new cultural figure or icon and having them inspi- taking on their identity, but then completely perverting like what what they mean. And I think that he's he's after something there about how culture works that I think is interesting. I like how in this comic book there are moments when people specifically will say, "Oh, Batman is reactionary," or "Batman is fascist," or so. So there's yeah. a, there's a level of deep awareness of how this can be taken. Yeah. That like as we've kind of seen future people come and grab the influence from Dark Knight Returns. You know, there is like some of that sense of like, you know, I I remember, I I remember uh, in high school, I was the right age where I saw Fight Club and thought it was really funny, but some of my friends actually started Fight Clubs. And so there's (laughs) a weird sense of like, you know, you're you're grasping onto the thing that is perhaps being satirized. Um, So I'm interested to know like, what do you guys think is missing what is Frank Miller doing here that maybe he does less in his later work? Or or what is he doing that maybe some people may have missed as they have kind of grasped that sort of, you know, influence ball and and uh, run with it? I think he's, well, I, I think he's doing this as if he's never going to do it again. I think that's the key, that there's not, this doesn't need to be a sustainable, it's funny because we're also talking a little bit about there is a Dark Knight 3 happening right now that's like mostly Azarello and Kubert with some, Miller, like a certain amount of Miller, we don't know exactly how much, like, you know, it seems like it's an attempt to sort of like turn the Dark Knight universe into a sustainable ongoing superhero universe, which is like how the, you know, that's the how the game is played. But there's a moment where, where it's as if he's he's leaving, he's leave, is possibly leaving this behind. Like when he's done, he's done with Batman at that moment. And so I, th- I feel like that's really what happens is like, and the weird part about Dark Knight as this, you know, this kind of break in the history of comics, this sort of turning point is that what it's supposed to be like dark knight and watchmen are supposed to both in their in, in their way are a farewell to the idea of the superhero but then the, as they get translated and sort of as people sort of rip it off and apply the lessons of those books they apply it in the opposite way it's it's like oh we actually we don't have to say farewell to the superhero we don't have to outgrow these things that are for kids because we're going to make them like really dark and violent and sexual and you know 
put curse words in there and like we're going to take it as far as it goes and so you never have to grow out of this stuff it's like which is like ultimately like commercial thinking it's like you never have to actually age out of the audience for the thing because we will always sort of make it more sophisticated and sort of more you know gritty and then eventually like you know these things become like you know it just becomes the house style of like Marvel and DC like New 52 is like in a lot of ways like very sort of like dark and nihilistic and would be an outlier in 1986 as a as a vision of the DC universe but like yeah, yeah I was thinking about that a lot because right when I started collecting DC comics like like regularly was when Superman died and then I think it was maybe three months later that Batman got his back broken and it's funny that I mean I'm, I'm not sure about this but yeah. Bane is just literally the mutant like gang leader with a mask and with without like with with, with a less embarrassing accent but or like and but, like but, a but, Rex but also, Harrison voice yeah yeah, yeah right? but, 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 but also like he's less memorable as a result and yeah it is strange that you know to think about this new batman v superman movie as cool as it may be on some lizard brain level to see the dark knight fight happen if that fight ends with them not like you know literally trying to kill each other then i'm not sure that i'm not sure like the point is really carried across if that makes any sense if the if the if at the end they're friends yeah which is ultimately i mean obviously it has to be that way it can't you know you, he's not going to kill batman they're not going to stop making more batman movies or whatever i yeah, no, I, I it, it's weird. The thing about that Batman Superman, like, I'm kind of excited about it only because I feel a real sort of, like, all the fanboys are upset about it because it doesn't seem to move the ball forward in that way. It's not, like, actually, it's not legitimizing anything. It's actually getting back to, like, sort of, you know, just, like, you're really banging the action figures together kind of stuff. But I'm like, that's what I want Zack Snyder to do. That's what I trust him to do, like, implicitly. Like, that, like, rather than, like, like Watchmen, no, not at all. But, like, this thing, like, actually, like, he's, the, uh, like, that's the best one on that Zack job. The Zack Snyder to succeed is to be the most Zack Snyder he could possibly be is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I don't want profundity out of this. Like, that's the thing. Like, and I think that's why people are sort of, you know, there doesn't seem to be the excitement about it, like, in the, in the exact, in the same way among the, the sophisticated fans that I, I speak to. I'm sort of, <laughs> I don't know. I'm psyched for it, though, weirdly. And for that lizard brain reason that, like, I, yeah, that. No, no I'm, yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. I mean, like, Jeff, Jeff and I had, like, probably our fiercest argument ever about Man of Steel, a movie that I really didn't like. And for some reason, I, I I'm actually worried that I'm going to really like this movie and no one else is, is going to like it. Like, like I like this is this is somehow a- activating the sort of inner you know opposite troll that is that, that is inside of my brain. Oh, I'm so far. I'm such a like quadruple agent of troll on this at this point. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just move. I'm so like I'm, yeah. It's really strange um, headspace to be in. I, I just wanted to like um, agree with something that you said a minute ago. Just t- talking about how um, the comic book industry taking all the wrong lessons from the dark knight and sort of creating this new uh trope you know it was as if they studied this book and they studied watchmen to some degree and like um what what did people like about these books and let's do more of it and they came to completely the wrong conclusions um just kind of you know like about like what is adult what what does that mean what is sophisticated and what that what does that mean what kind of archetypes um do people want um, it is, I, th- I think, interesting to note that against the, at the same, like the Dark Knight Watchmen alone didn't create all of this, um, and, and in terms of that archetype, because I think a, a couple of years previous, when Frank Miller does Wolverine, the Frank Miller Chris Claremont articulation of Wolverine, Absolutely. I think, had as much of an impact on what came after this moment as as anything else. Um, 
just that whole idea of a man of an anti-hero at war with his violent nature and allowing himself to kill and justifying all of that and that kind of justifiable nihilism that can come out of that similarly at the same i think the same year as the dark knight came out there was another comic that we don't really talk about a lot and rightly so but i think had a lot of impact on readers at that time which was the Mike Zek Punisher. Do you guys remember yes. that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that, was that the, the solo series Punisher? Yeah, or? I mean, it was a miniseries drawn by Mike Zek, who, like, when he can create his best stuff, there might have been a few people better and was on par with Anna, Anna Miller in terms of that really kind of gritty, violent street vigilante thing. But that was sort of the restart. We started to see the, the rebirth of the Punisher as a character, as this extreme nihilistic vigilante. And he would become, I think, one of the defining faces of the 90s and a poster boy for that kind of grim and gritty, awful style. It's a defining t-shirt of the 90s. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There was a point uh, when I was collecting comics, my brother had had been collecting. He was a little, he was a little older than me. He, he'd been collecting all three monthly Punisher comics. There was the Punisher, there was the Punisher War Zone, and there was the Punisher War Journal, which is impressive since each story was literally just Punisher gets into a scrape and the end is he kills the person. Like there, there were not a lot of kind of like long running like 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 big, big bads who popped up in uh, the Punisher comic. What right. about Punisher Armory? Punisher, Pun- <laughs> Punisher Armory, which is literally just guns. It's literally just a comic book. It's just pages yes. and pages of guns. That's right. Oh my god. It's a guy. So it's it's a guy Elliot Brown who illustrated all the uh, did all this like schematic drawings for the history of the Marvel universe, like just drawing like guns, like really detailed gun porn. But you're right, so, so, so Jeff, like it's you, like nine you're, issues. You're saying like 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 that comes out at, at the same time. That kind of has has the same darkening. Influence. So all of these sort of like archetypes, like that are are suddenly being like obviously the comic book industry is paying attention to. Wow, people really like this Wolverine. Wow, people really like this um, this version of the Punisher. Wow. People are not responding to the new universe. Though. Yeah. So let's let's go ahead and, and cut that off. They're really responding to like this big brawling nihilistic Batman. They're responding to Rorschach and 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 Watchmen. And I mean, I I find it kind of poignant, like the way that Alan Moore talks about Rorschach these days, like a, a regret for creating a character that basically got embraced as like, um, like that 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 people would weep for Rorschach at the end of Watchmen. Um, like th- that must make him feel good that he kind of created a character that we could care about, but that we would want that we would like him enough to see his archetype replicated across comics for the yeah, next he, decade. He's not trying to make like a badass character right. with, with Rorschach. It's like Rorschach is a critique of that whole badass thing, and it's like that's the, that's why the Zack Snyder movie is so infuriating because it just it's not even that like you're just like did you read this? Right. Like you read it? Yeah, I know you read it because all the words are there, but like did you read it? Read it? Like, with your eyes? Like, Do you yeah. think, like, is there some alternate universe where people really liked Night Owl and everyone was like, <laughs> we need more kind of lovable, chumpy, trying to do the right thing nerds? That's, like, that's so... That's, that's the character that we need to see more of it's in like, archetypal form. Yeah, people who watch Reality Bites and thought, like, didn't understand why Ben Stiller was not, like, the guy that she ended up with, like, that's the the Night Owl fan base. It's like, sort of, like it's, the, it's those guys. It's those guys. It's like, Night Owl's like, he's like the Albert Brooks in broadcast news of the, you know. Well, and, and it's 
big superhero universe. One, one thing that really struck me on this reread is um, what Miller does with the kind of superpowered characters or, or with Batman, with Superman, with these larger-than-life figures is interesting and it has been much talked about. Is clearly clearly left a huge mark on Zack Snyder that will that he will never kind of get past, which is true of many people. But I actually find that his portrayal of Commissioner Gordon is something that really resonates with me, especially in Batman Year One, which I, I tend to argue is a more has more of a clarity of purpose about itself than maybe any of Frank Miller's other things. Like, like that's what I'd kind of recommend to people who just kind of want a, a good story well told. But his Commissioner Gordon in this is really interesting and very human. And of all the kind of like repeated Millerisms that occur throughout Dark Knight Returns, you know, if, if you wanted to have a favorite, you know, there is like, this would be a good death, pops up very, very frequently. But Gordon sort of constantly saying, um, I think it's like... Um, I think of Sarah, the rest is easy. There's something very human and real about that. Now, then you kind of flash forward to Dark Knight Strikes Again, and his version of Gordon there is insane and is just sort of a ranting maniac, which is okay, because that's, that's maybe sort of what that comic is supposed to be about. But I do feel like Miller himself... There are less characters like that as you get into like Sin City and his sort of later comics work. You know, I got I disagree with you. I actually liked Gordon less reading this really? for a couple reasons. One is, I, I never kind of picked up before on the. I, I I do think that the whole thing about Sarah being his touchstone and this sort of like call back to hum, his humanity or just giving him moral clarity. I, I, I like that well Notably, enough. Notably, she never appears in a panel, which That's probably, right. probably also speaks to Miller's interests. But, but also, <laughs> like, um, I mean, for one thing, his sexism. You know, like, he's replaced, you know, Commissioner Gordon re- re- retires in this comic, and he's replaced by um, Detective Lindell, I believe, yes. or Yindel. Yindel, yeah. Yindel, yes. Yindel. And his first reaction is like Christ, a woman, or something like that. You know, I'm like. But then, but then, in fairness, then, then from kind of off-panel, Sarah says, "What's that?" And he says, "Like nothing." Oh, that, nothing that's true. Here. That's true. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is, I'm not supposed. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to like him, especially like after reading this again. And as much as I find his version of Batman still a complicated, um, fascinating character. Commissioner Gordon ultimately believes in him wholeheartedly. I right. mean, like in terms of everything that he represents and to the point of like trying to, um, I'm actually sympathetic to, uh, to, to you, you guys just told me what her name is. Yindel or Ellen, Ellen Yindel. Yindel. <laughs> She's a major names. character in the, the Dark, Dark Knight 3. What are you, come I on. <laughs> but like, I, I'm actually sympathetic to like Yindel's point of view of like, no, this guy is a criminal and he needs to be stopped. And her, his petition to her of like, no, 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 just let Batman be Batman. Um, I don't know if yeah. I liked him or well, not. But in fairness, now she also is a character who really popped for me on this reread. And again, yeah. I, think, I, I think it goes back to as much as this kind of works as on a level of kind of crazy, just beautiful artwork, kind of insano takes on these characters. Someone like Yindel who, as far as I know, has not really appeared in anything besides finally in Dark Knight 3 so many years later. Like, when we meet her, I don't know, she's an actual character you can kind of hold on to. And the fact that she looks up to Gordon, but is also very clearly, you know, you could sort of, like, say that she is the sort of good version of the mutants, where I'm a younger person with new, more liberalized notions of, you know, what should and shouldn't comprise law and order. And I, I don't know, again, like, just thinking about... 
how this story gets repeated throughout history and in what Miller does in this space. There's not a lot of characters like her in Sin City. You right. know what I mean? Like, like there's, there's, there's no one who's kind of like, I'm trying to do the right thing, I have my opinions, but things are crazy. Like, that's, that's true. true. There's no true. women who aren't prostitutes in Sin City, right. basically. Right. I mean, that's, that's, like, that's with, other like, she's a woman with a job, like, in government. Yes. Like, it's, was, it, was, it, was it Miller who conceived the idea of Catwoman as a former prostitute? And, 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 and does that hail from this originally? Because in year one, she is a prostitute. In this, Catwoman is an older kind of madam, I guess, basically, right. when, when we see her. Was, was that all him, or was that kind of... Did, did that have any roots? In I don't. I can't remember. I mean, that's got to be. That's got. That has be, his know. fingerprints on it. Uh, yeah. If you believe, like, yeah, that Year One is supposed to be the prequel to Dark Knight, like that, you know, that it's in the same, you know, it's that timeline, you know, it's the beginning of that. I don't know if you. Yeah. One of my questions to you guys is, and this is something I struggle with in Batman in general, and almost every version of Batman that I see, Batman as in a, especially every version of Batman since the Dark Knight. Batman as an admirable hero seems to only make sense to me as long as he lives in a world like Gotham City, where Go- where Gotham is just hopelessly corrupt, crime is absolutely out of control, and uh, and and the police are are just completely just not only ineffective but they don't really represent any kind of law and order at all. They're bought and they're sold. They're owned by the mob, and against that backdrop. This, the vigilante justice and this sort of like completely idealistic force that, 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 that Batman represents makes sense and I accept. But unless Gotham City, unless that kind of condition exists, Batman, as in terms of what he represents, is a pretty repugnant and absolutely unacceptable <laughs> hero, right? Yes, well, this is why, like, um, uh, I forget, Jeff, if you played any of the Arkham games, but, like, they're essentially, like, you know, Grand Theft Auto Batman, and they constantly bend over backwards to explain why this city has been cleared out of anyone <laughs> besides a bad guy. There are no innocent bystanders. For some reason, in the second game, they just kind of declared that, like, several neighborhoods of Gotham are now just, like, a prison with a wall around them, because I think, I mean, certainly in in video game form, you need to create that, and that's kind of what I think a lot of the comics drift off of, is the idea of if this is a remotely realistic law and order, you know, if there are any shades of gray here, then, then Batman is terrible, which is maybe why, I mean, to sort of shift the conversation a little bit to a topic that I know you want to talk about, Alex, when we get to Dark Knight Strikes Again, as much as people want to take Dark Knight Returns somewhat seriously Dark Knight Strikes again I mean th- there are there are nukes flying and aliens coming in <laughs> very early I mean like you know however however wacky elements of returns are Strikes Again is just it, it begins at a kind of size 12 you know Adam is fighting a, a young microscopic you know like a a, 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 a a microscopic creature I mean like, yeah it brings in the rest of the DC universe in a way and allows it to be like this is like it, it, they've shunted it aside like you know like Green Arrow shows up at one point but basically like the explanation in returns is that they've all been sort of retired by force basically that the government kind of said like either like register with us and so Superman is a government stooge and then everybody else is kind of just you know faded out and this like brings all of those characters back uh, uh, you know uh, strikes again does 
Um, I love Strikes Again, and I think I love it for that reason, just because it's so unhinged and because it's so not striving for the gravitas of this book. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like there's a, you know, I like it's it's so lame to, like, quote the, like, quotes on the book jacket, but, like, there's the quote from, I think it's James Kachalka on the back, where he's just sort of like, this seems like a guy who thinks that he's better than Frank Miller and, like, wants to show everybody, <laughs> you know? And I just love that about it. I just think it's the punkest thing Frank Miller ever did, you know? Like, and I, it, it just, it, every time I read it, I like it more, and it actually sort of, like, it re- sort of reverse, kind of, it affects my reading of this book, because it's almost like he's saying, like, that's not really what, ever, what everybody sort of saw in this book is not really what I was trying to say. There's, I'm not tearing down Batman in any way. I'm actually really excited about this. And then he just also, you just, because it's Frank Miller starting to get a little weird as as he gets older, like, it's just these, like, just nuts takes on these things. Like, I love that he finally, like, he he gets to write the question in there, like, a huge Ayn Rand fan, Frank Miller. I'm glad you mentioned the question. Yeah. The question has the best quote in, in all of Strikes Again. Quote, the human spirit is a shattered pane of glass wrapped in soft velvet and soaked in sugary poison. Soaked in sugary poison. I mean, it is it is hard to read that line and not just think this is this is the most brilliant spoof of something of of, of this kind of noirish oh, folk yeah. dialogue that has ever been written. And he, yeah, there's the amazing scenes in there. Like he's really like like Miller has a lot of like you know like he's not really an Anne Randite exactly. He's like he's really into Steve Ditko, who was really into Anne Rand. So it's like a secondhand. It's through like Mr. A, you know, and also through the question and like all those things. Like so he actually like it's not Howard. Rourke, it's the question. But, like, it's really fun to read that book because there's also, he stages these really weird sort of, like, just as, like, you have the ideological conflicts between talking heads in this book, between, like, the serious news folk, you know, like, of Gotham mm-hmm. City, like, in, like, Dark Knight uh, Strikes Again, it's, like, it's almost like the Fox News version, so it's just people just yelling talking heads at each other. So it's, like, you have, like, Green Arrow shows up, and he's, like, Bernie Sanders, and then, like, the question <laughs> is, like, I feel like, Rand Paul or something, and they're just sort of, like, they're arguing, so, like, there's a great, like, you know, yeah, so it's, like, objectivism. It's, like, secondhand objectivism, which is really, like, I don't know. I, I, I love that book so much. And then, like, I think there's moments in there that are, like, you know, stand with... It doesn't feel real, and it doesn't feel realistic, and it doesn't... It's not the kind of thing that you'd be like, this is what I'm going to show to, you know, people who don't or don't take comics seriously to say, like, you should take this seriously. Like, these are as good as novels or whatever. Like, it's like <laughs> comics. It's like really comics-y. And, like, that's the there's, best part. Like, there's the scene at, at the end of the first issue of Strikes Again when Superman uh, needs to go and fight Batman, and he goes to the Batcave and gets it, you know, throughout history, the Batcave, when you see it, there is a big dinosaur statue. Never really explained how it got there or yep. what the case was. And he attacks and the dinosaur attacks him. And that, that is sort of the level we're at with Strikes Again, I, I, I think. What intrigues me though is, I mean, Jeff, like, to go back to something you asked, you can try to analyze Dark Knight Returns as something that has these themes and, and as something that is perhaps trying to say something about law and order and about heroism and, and stuff. Like, does it frustrate you that with Strikes Again, Miller seems to just move away from that or, or move to a totally different space from that? Um, I, with, with Strikes Again, my problem with Strikes Again was... Um, was that I, I see what he was trying to do and I heard what he was trying to do and I hear what you're saying, Alex, but I kind I'm of... I'm completely unreasonable about this. <laughs> so you don't That's need fine. to... That's <laughs> fine. And, and, and I think you... Which I defend the master race no, at, I, at the end of this podcast. I, I think you actually made a really good argument for it. I mean, especially in the argument for just trying to puncture 
the ponderousness of this and sort of like um, trying to find the fun in just being crazy with everything and bringing in all of these superheroes and having a really fun time. My problem with Strikes Again was it felt like a strained effort to put a very dark genie back in the bottle. You know, like this this moment of comics with the Dark Knight and the Watchmen kind of unleashing this moment into comics and this darkness. I, I, I was I was I was struck to learn on the internet today that this pure, this post Dark Knight Watchmen period of comics is called either the modern era of comics or the dark age of comics. <laughs> so let's just go with dark age for now. But it, it kind of felt like much in the same way Alan Moore's great failed 1963 project was his attempt to try to stuff the genie back in the bottle. And like top 10 and stuff like that. Yes. It's the same thing. It's like oh, he's, it's, him trying to, it's him trying to take back what he said. Sort of be like, no, that's not really what I meant about superheroes. Like, here's a way that we could do it that they could, yeah. And and make them fun again. You know, I think that's kind of what I felt like was the to, to, to really reduce the press release on all of these things down to a, maybe a, a wrong word. But to make things fun again. And I, I think that ultimately... I don't necessarily think that that's where I was at. I don't know, um, and I and I didn't necessarily like their definition of fun. I think their their idea of fun was still hopelessly beholden to a sensibility that was ultimately a little darker, a little more cracked. Um, uh, you know, the '90s in the most charitable read of comics was was a, about a struggle of figuring out what is fun um, well, listen, in thing, comics it's, again. It's funny, like I always kind of wonder as a counterfactual. I mean, in the world where Dark Knight Returns was not so completely the phenomenon that it was, and, and that it it did not, I, I think, give Frank Miller maybe some anxiety about needing to create a, a, a kind of phenomenon whenever he did Batman. I, I, I've always wondered, like, you know, to me, would I just, would I like to see him do, like, like a couple Batman standalones? You know what I mean? Or, like, like see him do, like, you know, not, like, like, see him do a fun Batman story that is fun the way that, you know, the kind of, like, Neil Adams stuff in the, Neil, Neil Adams, right? Like, like that stuff in the 70s. There is still the sense in Strikes Again, and certainly in The Master Race of, like, you know, the, the stakes keep getting bigger and bigger to the point where I think in, the, but, but by the end of the second issue of Master Race, you know, the whole galaxy might be at stake now or something like yeah. that. And well, yeah, there's, there's yeah, no... there's a bunch of uh, Kryptonians running around. Like, yes, right. like, they whole, are, like... We were wondering what the master race was. I was wondering this for for, for a year. You get nervous around <laughs> Frank Miller when he starts throwing words like that around. Like anybody, you know, like you at this moment, like everybody was like, "Oh man, like <laughs> what is this going to be?" You're lucky it's Kryptonians. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, one of the frustrating things about Frank Miller is that he breaks his own narrative as a comic book artist. I mean, after the Dark Knight. I mean, I think he tries, you know, he does He does two other things the same year, right? Batman year one, but he also also does Electra Assassin. Yes. And that was super freaking cool and continues this conversation of like pushing storytelling. But then after that, I think he tries to go Hollywood, right? He tries, he, he moves to, well, he's Robocop. definitely in Los Angeles and he tries to write the Robocop sequel. He, wrote, he tries to write multiple Robocop He wrote sequels, two. Right? He wrote he wrote Robocop 2 and had a terrible experience and then they were like, hey, do you want to write Robocop 3? He was like, hell yes. <laughs> and like tries to do it and like it just, yeah, and he has nothing but unkind things to say and that's how you get Sin City. That's, that's how, you how you get, get mad Sin enough City. to make Sin City. So he gets, a, he has this nightmarish experience like, you know, like, you said something interesting that I, I agree with. Like reading The Dark Knight 
and reading a couple of those other things that year that he did. Or was it, when did he, did he do Born Again and Daredevil that same year too? Same doing it all at the same time. Like he, uh, there's a Comics Journal interview that I read last night trying to remember a couple of things for this. And I think he's sort of, he's in the process of, I think like maybe like because it was so uh, like, you know, involved like for Sienkiewicz, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz to paint all that Electro Assassin stuff. I think maybe he'd written that and it had not come out yet. And so I think like they came out in a different order from when they were written, but like assume that that's all kind of like that all stems from like one period of like really intense productivity. Born again, like Electra, like it just like hit that year beats your life. Like it just right. like, you know like how do you do that? And it definitely felt like his valedictory like summary statement about superhero comics in terms of what he can do and everything. And and, and if and maybe in his mind. That's what it was, because then he, I think that maybe he hoped that he could leave comics behind, or at least mainstream superhero comics, and go Hollywood and maybe come back to comics in some individual way, like a, a, a Ronin. But the, the Hollywood experience doesn't work, and it just feeds all of the darkest parts of him. And we get Sin City, which I think is the biggest mixed great thing that he's ever I mean there's parts of it that are beautiful and then other parts of it that are just kind of like disgusting yeah I don't I think it's it, it looks amazing I think it's an amazing word just piece of like draftsmanship and especially like as he gets like further into it like once he's like either I think he got to a point where he was just like drawing it on a wall on like a giant piece of paper <laughs> no I'm serious like and it looks like it. it looks like he's just like slashing a canvas like and it's it like as like as drawing it's amazing and like he's still like I find his you know his the, the evolution of his drawing style to be fascinating yeah. and like every sort of turn of it is interesting and like there's never like he's never I don't think he can draw a boring comic like yes. his writing is like a very different story in that. And like Sin City is basically like, you know, and like he, he's talked about it. it's like Sin City is like he's like, I want to draw a 10 page sequence of a guy walking in the rain, smoking a cigarette. And like it's the best 10 page sequence you've ever seen of that being done. But it's just it's like that it's all sort of it's a reaction to like Hollywood and like studio notes and like all that stuff and like having these things kind of taken away from him and so it's like this kind of rampant auteurism but like yeah. it's not it's like Mickey Spillane and like Mickey Spillane kind of sucks right like, well, no, yeah. well, and, and then what's funny to me is but then you get to the point where after years of Hollywood saying no it, it's funny like that's such a central thing in comic book mythology like you know you, you, you think of how um, I always remember in, in Sean Howe's book like Stan Lee has that incredible just, just you know creative period and then as portrayed in uh, Marvel Comics The Untold story whenever he appears in the next 30 years he's like in LA taking meetings trying yeah. to get movies going and it yeah. just never happens he's like I'm in Hollywood California and he's like in Burbank you yes, know? like it's yes, not even yes. like and, and but, but what's funny is that with Miller then you have Hollywood start saying yes 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 kind of all at once in ways that seem to be simultaneously great for him and perhaps ruinous for him. I, I've actually never seen his spirit. Is it like, is it worth seeing? Is it, it's does horrible. it do anything? I it's, mean, because my, my concern there is like, that so is not Will Eisner in any way. It's so him kind of turning Will Eisner into Sin City that it looks kind of strange. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's it's crazy. Like, there's like really crazy fetish stuff with uh, Scarlett Johansson, if that's your bag. Like, it's sort of like, that's the, th like, it's like, clearly his. like Nazi stuff? 
it yeah, there's like nurse things. Like he kind of goes. It's like you get a little tour of like what Frank Miller would would maybe have Scarlett Johansson dress up as if he had that choice. Like it's, it's Scarlett, right? Am I yes, making that yes, up? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like I'm trying to remember. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of that. She, it, she's very happy that you don't quite remember. If, if yeah, she'd probably <laughs> rather she'd be like, "That's cool." No, it's cool. She's like, "Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe it was Nev Campbell. I don't know." Like, uh, uh, and uh, really, uh, if you're a fan of unhinged Sam Jackson, like he just like no hinges at all. Like he just. But, 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 but like, no. But as a kind of like like Frank Miller work, like like that doesn't even that doesn't even kind of like scratch the sort of strikes again itch of like being wacky. And it, it's just no, kind of... it's just a bad movie. Like, <laughs> like I, I I I'm not I'm not a fan. And also like that guy that they got to play. It's like he's it's it's basically like we can't I guess bring me a young Bruce Campbell, but like the young Bruce Campbell that they got to play. Suits guy. Get, they got, no, no, the they suits got, guy. They got he's suits. just not. He, yeah, it's just he's just not the same. It's like you know what they're going for, but like it's just not. He just has no Gabriel Macht, right? To go back to something you were saying, Jeff, like, like the way that his narrative, his his own kind of comic book narrative, gets broken by Hollywood. I mean, like, where is that narrative now? I mean, on one hand, we are looking at a, a year when the, the the sort of Frank Miller web of influence keeps on spreading. And again, like in visual terms, at least, Batman v Superman is maybe the most Frank Millery thing. I mean, like the fact that Zack Snyder already turned Watchmen and Superman into a kind of Frank Miller series of movies is really telling to how his influences spread. But I mean, like, where are we at now with Frank Miller? I, I guess is, is what I'm asking. Like, like his reputation seems to be growing and shrinking all at the same time in sort of an interesting way. Yeah, he had that kind of really uh, dark moment a couple years ago where he. Um, wrote something on his website, some kind of political screed, I believe, about the Occupy movement, and that did not necessarily endear himself well. And there is this political streak to Frank Miller that comes out in weird, uh, suspicious bursts that suggests a really troubled and uh, personality who has a lot of demons, and to degree to which I think that maybe this podcast should not speculate for legal reasons. So what I would say is... What I would say is, where where is Frank Miller? I always Miller? love whenever this podcast gets to that yeah. point, Jeff. <laughs> I, I, I find myself having a lot of affection for Frank Miller while at the same time, and, and believing in him as an artist, while at the same time now being really troubled by him and my, my hope. And so he's, he's wildly uneven. He's often very scary. And I don't necessarily think he's very essential right now. But there is this hope that I have for him that he can wrestle to the ground whatever demons that he really has and with a sober head make some really great work let me again. ask you this in a way that will hopefully skirt any potential lawsuits um which character from dark knight returns do you think frank miller is at this point in terms of his reputation because i might argue you know there's a tendency to sort of say oh he's kind of become batman he has become this sort of older kind of angry figure to me upon rereading this the, I sort of feel like maybe he's Two-Face, where there's just this, there's this sadness around Two-Face in Dark Knight Returns, and this sense of, here is someone who's been so tormented for so long, and now he's kind of free. He, he's literally, I, I love how in Dark Knight Returns, people just constantly get set free, because some psychologist says he's, he's been healed now. He's, yeah, liberalism <laughs> is, a, you know, yeah, setting criminals free, right but, and left. But, like, you know, to go back to what Alex said, the, the sadness around Two-Face and his sort of final moments in this where it just seems like there's something that he himself cannot control and he is both okay with that and kind of sad about that. There is a, a poignance to that 
that is very absent from a lot of stuff Frank Miller has done recently. I don't know. I wonder if he maybe relates to to that more so than to the more extreme character. I bet he does. Yeah. If he is Two-Face, the question is, what is the face of the monster within him? <laughs> I would argue that sometimes it seems it's one of those mutants in its most virulent form. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, though, I'm going to argue, I'm not going to argue in any way for its politics, which are completely loathsome, but I'm going to say that the the, the the book, that the Holy Terror, which was supposed yeah. to be a Batman story, and then DC was like, mm, yeah, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> they like actually read it. It's like, it's Batman. It's like his post 9-11 Batman story. Like Frank Miller yeah. like lived downtown in Manhattan like and was there on 9-11 and like the dust cloud hits his windows or whatever. And he becomes like whatever his personal situation is that's maybe contributing to the extremism of the the, the way the viewpoint is expressed. Like, he's also just kind of a post-9-11 hawk kind of guy. Like, he yeah. sort of turns, like, he's always, it's one of those guys who's, like, maybe always had some conservative leanings, but then just becomes a, like, we should just sort of, like, he becomes, like, an Ann Coulter, we should just go kill their leaders and convert them to Christianity kind of guy. Yeah. Like, he just goes, like, all the way over, and he's just like this, and it's, like, it's actually, like, it's perfect for the guy who's writing Batman because like a guy who's been writing Batman as a guy whose whole thing is like moral clarity, right and wrong. It's not law and order. It's right and wrong. And like, we will just like do our, you know, we will, I will do what I, what it has to, what has to be done. And like Holy Terror. So it's supposed to be like, it's probably supposed to be Dark Knight three. And there was like a moment when it was solicited as Dark Knight three. And like, there was a, a graphic of him, like riding into a village, like Batman going to beat up the Taliban, like in a very kind of like, you know, it's he claims that it's like supposed to be going throwing back to like you know a, a slap a jap for cap kind of like World War Two <laughs> like buy war bonds says the Submariner kind of stuff. It's not really that, but like it's very much that book. If you can divorce yourself from the repugnance of what it's saying about Muslims and about sort of like that entire part of the world and like the simplicity of its worldview in terms of that, like it's really beautiful in like a dark kind of like spattered kind of way. Like it's sort of like he's it's, like it's less controlled than a lot of the stuff that he's been doing. But like, you know, it has that sort of broad format kind of like, you know, that look of like the yeah. 300 has. Like if you can just look at it as a piece of art, which yeah. I totally anybody who can't do that, like I like I don't blame. <laughs> <laughs> but like if you actually like which you know but like I, I sort of I did that like when I was sort of writing about it because I'd never I was like I was like you know forget this thing but like you know when I actually sort of looked at it like it, it, it's kind of amazing and like it's kind of like beautiful and strange like and, you know also awful yeah as a formal innovator I mean he's still really amazing I mean I, I, I'll totally give him that and yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. There's something I want to defend about Frank Miller, even though what comes out of him, I kind of recoil. But he's I he's like your he's your Kanye, basically, Jeff. Yeah. Is he? Okay. Everything is incredibly internally consistent. That's the yes. thing. Like he's sort of like, it's always like he's, he's been Frank Miller this whole time and he's not really, it's not as if like he started out like on the far left and like went to the far right or anything like that. Like you, when you see it, it like if you read backwards, like it's like, oh, that actually makes total sense. Like he's, and like, it's just sort of gotten crazier as like he's gotten crazier because people get crazier as they get older. And like, I, I love that he uses comic books and the grammar of like uh superhero uh storytelling to make these really personal raw statements there's i think that art is more interesting and comics are more interesting if more people kind of operated from that place um and uh yeah uh, speaking of great frank miller works that we've neglected to mention 300 like i i i think i thought i was remember being blown away by that 
Yeah, that's just the, I mean, that's one where just like the, you know, I, I'm not like so so into it as a story necessarily, but the technical yes. command yes. that is going on there, it's like 300 and uh, is it Electra Lives Again that kind of has that same sort of, it's around, I think it's a, like, the, I think of those as being like of a piece, like where he's like very precise and very kind of, the composition is, is you know, it, like it's Sin City is that way a little bit too, but like, the, the you know, the yeah, when he's like really getting like, high, like hyper detailed. And everything like I actually like the thing that I the stuff that a lot of like, my favorite stuff of his, even though he's one of my favorite artists, like some a lot of my favorite Frank Miller stuff is the stuff that he wrote for other people to draw. Mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing that's sort of like, you know, and, and, and that's that's what I'm sort of like why I wish like Dark Knight three was was better. Like I, I wish that he was sort of like if he was scripting for someone else. You know, to illustrate because, like, you know, Electra Assassin, like, all those things. And I actually really like Martha Washington, like, in that, you know, like... Martha Washington, which you mentioned earlier, this is the kind of... Like, it, it, he, he, that was the saga he was telling for a long time, right? It's kind of set in the future. Yeah, and it's it's uh, him and Dave Gibbons, I think. Like, yeah. Yeah, like, sort of, like uh, who did Watchmen. And it's and he kept coming... He's come back to it over and over again. And the, it's where the... It's, like, his... it's This is his most Ayn Rand stuff because it's about sort of like the you know this individual who rises but it's like I always found it really interesting that like even as he was doing this you know sort of like Batman is like the archetypal like we need an old white guy to come in here and clean up this town and everything he's also writing like one of the longest running series about a black female protagonist yes. like in comics like in sort of like it's you know and like it's he's responsible for like you know it's it like Nobody talks about it, and like now it's available in like a book that weighs five hundred pounds that no one will ever you know pick up because it's like one of those like anthologies that completely defeats the purpose because no one you're not gonna like take it on the bus with you but you know uh, yeah he's uh, I I really like that book too and it's like that book it's also it's crazy it's really strange it's like it's very sort of there's some there's some Kirby esqueness to it like that you don't necessarily see in a lot of his work and yeah yeah. I find more and more that's what I want more from things that are like Frank Miller is the awareness that what he was accomplishing, and I guess in a way this is what happens when you have someone operating at that high level, what he was accomplishing was not just the kind of smeary grit that that a lot of people absorb, that there was a lot of kind of genuine both craziness, but also a, a real willful injection of his own personality into And a it. lot of ideas. I mean, yeah. there's just a lot of ideas in his writing. Um, I, I bet that we're at the max time for our podcast, but I don't think that we can end the podcast without, like, Alex, can you, Alex, can you just talk a little bit about your theory of the Muppets and how Frank Miller ruined the Muppets? <laughs> but just in general, the idea that you kind of put forth in that essay about how maybe the legacy of Frank Miller and some of the ideas or ideas of that time have seeped into our current pop culture and how that gets expressed. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's that idea that I, I mean, I think I touched on it a little bit, which is that because ultimately it's a commercial idea, right? It's a way of keeping the, like the big problem with comics always for, you know, like forever, like, you know, like from when they cost a nickel was that eventually like, your audience would age out of being into comic books. At some point, like, you would hit a wall, whatever that wall was, whether it was, like, you sort of, like, you know, you get into music or, like, you know, like, whatever it is, like, you know, something else happens and, like, you know, this was a thing that you would put aside. And that was always a problem because it was always, you know, there was always a new crop of eight-year-olds, but there was, you know, like you could at some point there was an idea that like there was a there was a ceiling on what the readership would be like you know age wise and like you have to you know what happens with miller and like that gets sort of translated into the way that you know like as the as the industry sort of figures out how to sort of mark commercialize and market what's happening in this book like that changes right because then suddenly like you never have to grow out of anything like 
and I, I and I feel like that gets taken to its logical extreme when it, you know you get the Muppets who hate their jobs and are sort of as miserable as you and there's sort of no angry middle-aged Muppets angry middle-aged yeah exactly like sort of like a sad kind of like you know Kermit the Frog who's like broken and like didn't accomplish like what he set out to accomplish (laughs) in the world of variety shows I guess I mean like there's holes in this theory certainly because the Muppets always were I think a lot of people were sort of like the way that they interpreted that essay was that it was like I was saying the Muppets are for kids and things that are for kids should never be for adults and like there's not how dare you sir I got a lot of how dare you sir on that and it wasn't that because I know that the Muppets are like they're of course like that was what was great about it was it was adult humor and there was like weird stuff happening that completely flew over your head and like if you go back to those shows now like I've tried to show my daughter the Muppet show she's like marginally interested she's like yeah I get it. It's felt. It's like, you know, we have the CGI now. Like, more ones and zeros. More ones and yeah, zeros. Yeah, no, exactly. She's like, yeah, so they're puppets? Like, I get it. Like, no, I mean, but it's not, I'm not saying that, like, these things always have to be sort of, like, safe for children necessarily, but there's something about, like, equating sort of things being a bummer with things being mature, I think. Or relevant. From, or relevant, exactly. Yes. That, like, it can't be. And, like, I think that's, you know, I mean, I think that's a misreading of this because I think this is about sort of, like, this is Frank Miller's excitement about Batman. It's what he thinks is, like, really cool about Batman. Like, you know, and even Batman is excited. Like, there's a moment, like, Batman's like, this feels amazing when he's, like, beating people up. He's right. like, I have missed this so much. Like, just, yeah, like. We, we tend to lump like everything that the Dark Knight Returns. I, I think that one thing that I was confronted by reading this again is that the Dark Knight Returns, there's just a lot going on in this comic and it can't be easily reduced. But one one way in which uh, it is representative of its time is that it, it participated with a number of different stories of the comic book era in which a, a sort of uh, a tried and true and dusty icon was rebooted with an eye toward relevancy. Um, but that reboot takes the form of the most cynical, pessimistic articulation of their personality or of, or of their origins. And there was something about that creative sensibility back in the 80s and 90s that felt fresh and new and exciting and relevant. Um, but that became a kind of practice that has kind of been passed down and maybe even pollinated through other media. And so what I really kind of resonated with with your theory is that what you saw in the Muppets then was this sort of like now cliche approach toward reinvention, toward relevancy by just making everyone so realistic, deconstructed, um, hopelessly human in a really negative way. Yeah, no, I think that's what that's what goes on. You just see it like, you know, it's like think about like I I kind of like this book, but like Old Man Logan, mm-hmm. you know, which is like Marvel's sort of version. It's Marvel's Dark Knight. It's like they finally got around to doing it with Wolverine. Somehow <laughs> they finally figured out that that was probably, a, you know, would be a cool thing to do. Yeah, but like exactly that. Like it's like oh, like the Muppets should be jerks, and like that's yeah. how that's how we'll make a Muppet show that's for adults. Like we're not gonna just make it really funny and like have you know sort of like have the jokes be really good. Like we're just gonna have like Miss Piggy be like a rotten kind of diva sort of you 
know, like like Jenna Maroney kind of character, and like it's sort of like it's like Jenna Maroney was already Miss Piggy. Like you don't need to do that. You don't need that's not a joke. Then if you do, it's like they were already. That, right, that, it, it is like like the the thing that was imitated is now the thing that is imitating somehow. Yeah, yeah it's just it. That's the thing exactly. That it's like the, the, it, it, things have to become more cynical in order for them to be appreciated by sophisticated people. Yeah. Like that's what I'm sort of. That's what I was reacting to. I think with the Muppets is that you know it's not. You know, like things have to be better. You know, like that's sort of like, <laughs> right, like yeah, that yeah. would be good. You know, I mean, but I mean, that's a better way to go about it than you know than just sort of like we're gonna we're gonna be like, yeah, we know the Muppets are stupid. Like, like we yeah, like, and I don't yeah. think that's really what they're doing. I think those pe- everyone involved with the Muppets like really loves the Muppets. I don't want to really like right. You know, absolutely, yeah. I, I, the, with the best intentions coming at it and trying to figure out how to make a sitcom out of the Muppets, but like they're just you know there are just too many things wrong with that. Like in you know. My guess is probably what they're more, more, more specifically responding to um, was just coming off this decade of anti-hero drama and also kind of really uh, edgy sitcoms, thinking that um, the Muppets need, if you're going to have a primetime show um, and you want an adult audience, an 18 to 49 demo kind of thing, you're going to have to speak in that language uh, and... That, that was regrettable. Interestingly enough, I think that the whole like golden age of television drama, um, I think we, we've seen the comic book, uh, a narrative played out uh, like in, in, in the golden age of drama where you have, yes, Darren, you're Did looking Frank at... Miller create the golden age of TV no, drama? No, no, but what I would say is I think... <laughs> because he probably wants some money. If that's right, right, right. <laughs> but, I, but I think that in terms of the way that we talk about... Um, the golden age of, of, of TV drama is the dark age of comics in the sense of like, uh, I think that the Sopranos and Six Feet Under and those early HBO shows going up to uh, uh, like we're, we're game changers the way that we talk about Watchmen and the Dark Knight where and then we kind of see a lot of innovation. Let's not take anything away from comics. There was a lot of innovation that those comics inspired, especially a lot of those early Vertigo comics. I mean, we don't get Sandman. We don't get Neil Gaiman. We don't get Grant Morrison without these guys. At least but, like without the idea that this would be this could be very successful, right? Like, right. That's the thing. That's the reason why, like you know, like Jeanette Kahn goes to England and like meets like Neil Gaiman and like, for, like recruits all these guys to sort of, like is looking at that. Is, is, is yeah, it's like where do you have any more Alan Moore's over here? Right, like right. it's sort of, like because this is good. This is working for us. But but in television, we see kind of like um, broadcast television looking at what HBO is doing and going. You know, that is where the cult- cultural conversation is at. We need to get people talking about broadcast television. And then you get like that beautiful year. I mean, you get like like uh, of the early 2000s where you get like 24, which was really innovative at the time. You get lost. You get desperate housewives, which is, you know, like didn't really amount to much. But at the time, those were really exciting, form-breaking shows. Even the idea see, of, of, of just sort of being bold and slightly different, that is now monetizable. And so it's like, yes, right. do that. We're like and, and new and different. different and creative actually makes sense as a business model, like for, for broadcast television. That was really exciting. And then by the end of the decade, you still get really great stuff, of course, like by Mad Men, whatever. But now... The anti-hero has become something that it seems that every critic, just like including me, like just bemoans. Like, can we move? What What's the next? What's the what's 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 next after that? Stop replicating that form, and move on to and and emulate the best qualities 
uh, the best uh, quality of things like The Sopranos, which was it was an attempt to do something new. So what's the new for now? You're saying now we're surrounded by Nucky Thompsons, basically, is, 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 yes. is what you're getting. Yeah. <laughs> that, are, that are trying to be Tony Soprano. Guys, I think we pretty much solved Frank Miller today. Yeah, I'm sure Exciting. he feels better. I think that I'm we, sure he does. I think we managed to really, to really like bring together all the paradoxes in his character. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for being here today. President Obama himself actually tried to stop you from being here, so it, it, it's nice that you managed to he, arrive yeah, here. He snarled park. up the traffic, but uh, you know we, we, we made it anyway. I think yeah, Frank Miller would definitely be upset about that if Obama brought, blocked Frank Miller from getting to the studio. But, uh, thank you again. Uh, we get Dark Knight 4 out of that. <laughs> thank you again, though. Alex Papadinos, formerly of Grantland, futurely of MTV. Great to have you here. And uh, come back next week where we'll be talking about uh, God knows what, actually. Oh, so stick, yeah. stick around for I'm more. I'm looking for you. Like, what are we talking about next week? <laughs> uh, we're, like, let's be clear, Jeff. We're probably going to start out talking about Dark Knight Returns again. Okay. Because we usually do. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone.